Hello, this is Daryl Bloodworth. This is Lesson 3 in our study of the Gospel of John. We begin with John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there for a few days. So chapter 2 begins during the same week that John wrote about in chapter 1. Remember, Jesus had left the area where John the Baptist was baptizing, not far from Jerusalem, and he returned to Galilee. The first verse of chapter 2 shows at least one reason why he left, to attend a wedding in Cana. Cana was a small town in Galilee quite close to Nazareth. So Jesus, his mother, and his disciples had left to attend the wedding. Again, this is a story beautifully told in The Chosen. Before we get into the specifics of what went on at the wedding and Jesus' miracle there of turning water into wine, let's acknowledge that this might be considered a minor miracle, at least compared to making the lame walk, giving sight to the blind, or raising the dead. Had Jesus not turned the water into wine, the bride and groom would still have been married. Life would have gone on as usual, although it would have been a humiliation to the newly wedded couple, and perhaps their parents as well, that they ran out of wine. I, for one, am glad that his first miracle was a minor miracle. We all feel sympathy for a lame, sick, or diseased person, but we're not as quick with our sympathy for someone just because they ran out of wine at a somewhat extravagant wedding reception. But Jesus understood and was ready to pour out his grace on this family to prevent an embarrassment at the wedding. It might be considered a small grace compared to redeeming someone for all eternity, but this small grace shows how extravagant God's love is for us. Remember in chapter 1, John says, What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. What John was saying is that Jesus has shown us by his own life what life was intended to be when God created us. Everything in Jesus' life was an extension of grace to those about him, even when he was telling the people truths that were hard to hear. While we likely will never turn water into wine, give sight to the blind, or raise the dead, we can and should, as followers of Jesus, 
always be ready to extend small graces to others as often as we can. And not only to those whom we know and love, but also to those who dislike us or disagree with us. If we do this, we will fulfill Jesus' command that we love one another just as he has loved us. Now let's look at the story. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited to the wedding. Given how the rest of the story plays out with Mary telling the servants to do what Jesus tells them, she was probably a relative of the bride or groom, perhaps even the sister of the mother of the bride or groom. Wedding celebrations were a very big event in Jewish life, and the family was expected to throw a party, a big party. Wine was a very big part of their celebrations, and running out of wine would be more than just a social faux pas. It would have been a humiliation that would not quickly go away. Why did they run out of wine? John doesn't tell us. Perhaps it's because they invited more people at the last minute than they had planned for, such as all of Jesus' disciples, or perhaps they didn't have enough money to properly plan for the festivities. Whatever the reason, Mary becomes aware that they had run out of wine or soon would, and she knows what an embarrassment that would be to the host. So Mary immediately goes to Jesus. That in itself is telling. She knows her son. She has known him from birth, and she knows his heart. She also knows somehow that he will be able to address the lack of wine. Now, Jesus' response to Mary seems a little harsh to us. He says, woman, what concern is that of ours? But the language used here in the Greek doesn't translate very well into English. First, it was not an insult to call his mother woman. Remember, on the cross, he uses the same word when he says to her, woman, your son, referring to John, who would thereafter care for Mary for the rest of her life. Furthermore, Mary's response clearly shows that she understood that Jesus was about to do something to resolve the problem. She instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. So at this point in the story, try to imagine yourself in the shoes of the servants. Jesus tells them to fill up the stone jars used for ceremonial cleansing with water. There were six jars that held about 20 to 30 gallons each. They clearly would have been mystified by a command to fill them up with water when the issue was running out of wine, not water. But they did, filling each to the brim with fresh water. The next command would have mystified them even more. Jesus tells the servants to take some of the water to the chief steward, the one responsible for serving the food and the wine. Imagine their shock when the chief steward carefully tastes what they thought was just water, and then he announces it, is some of the best wine he has ever tasted. So much so that he goes to the groom and in essence asks, why did you save the best wine for last? Most people serve the best wine first and the poor wine later when palates are dulled. Not only is it the best wine he had ever tasted, but there's six stone jars full of the best wine. Although scripture doesn't tell us he was aware of that. Now try to imagine the relief of the bride and groom and their families. The wedding celebration was about to come to an embarrassing end, but it would not be ruined now by a lack of wine because of what Jesus had done. The family, the servants, and Jesus' disciples all knew what happened, and John says it revealed Jesus' glory. 
It also revealed his compassion for an ordinary family in the midst of one of the most important days of their lives. John also says his disciples believed in him, recognizing that they had witnessed a miracle. It was one of his minor miracles, but it perfectly demonstrated the grace of Jesus. Verse 12 tells us Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples then left for Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters for most of his ministry. Let's pick up now with John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. So following a few days back in Capernaum with his family and disciples, Jesus heads off to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. As we will see, his actions there don't support the off-given description of Jesus as being meek and mild, and for good reason. Now, to understand this story, we have to put uh, it in context. He's going to Jerusalem for a Passover feast. And during the Passover feast, the population of Jerusalem would swell to three or four times its normal population, making it a powder keg for rebellion against the Romans. So security precautions were at a high level by the Romans. All of those coming to Jerusalem for Passover would have to pay a temple tax and offer a sacrifice which required a sacrificial animal. Obviously, among other things, this would pump up the economy in Jerusalem and was also good for the temple treasury. The temple tax could only be paid in the Jewish shekel, so money changers were necessary. There was also the requirement that any animal offered for sacrifice had to be pure with no defects. Now, these requirements led to a high level of buying and selling sacrificial animals and money changing during Passover. The historical data indicates that all of this commercial activity had previously taken place on the Mount of Olives, which was outside the gates of Jerusalem. However, about this time, the high priest decided to move the money changers and animal merchants into the court of the Gentiles, which was part of the temple complex. Keep in mind that when scripture refers to the temple, it's not just a building, but a 35-acre area that included the temple building and several different large courts, with the court of Gentiles being the outermost court. 
Jesus arrives at the temple and probably unexpectedly finds the court of the Gentiles filled with people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers as well. He observes this, and then he acts very intentionally. He makes himself a whip out of cords, and he proceeds then to drive all of the animals and their owners out of the temple complex. He also overturned the money changers' tables, throwing their coins on the ground. And you can imagine the mad scramble among the money changers trying to recover their coins and those who might try to make off with some of the coins. Jesus yells at the people as he does this, Get these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Jesus is loudly expressing righteous anger over the situation. And John whispers to us that his disciples later remembered that Psalm 69 says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Indeed, this episode is one of the charges against Jesus later when he's brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin court. Prior to the Jews taking him to the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate to get him crucified. The response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus' action is in itself very interesting. They don't ask why Jesus did what he did. They ask, what sign can you show us for doing this? They seem to be implicitly recognizing that what Jesus did was not wrong, but they question why he thought he had the authority to do what he did. And Jesus' response demonstrates another instance of his being misunderstood. He says, destroy this temple And in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jewish leaders took this literally and mocked him. John again whispers to us that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. Although his disciples didn't recognize this until after the resurrection. This was the first dust up between Jesus and the Jewish power brokers. But it won't be the last. Verses 23 to 25 tell us that Jesus performed many signs during this Passover period, although he gives no specifics. He does tell us, however, that many believed in Jesus because of the signs he performed. Then he makes a statement that is somewhat puzzling when you read it. It says, But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now remember, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Although Jesus clearly knew the cross was ahead for him, the time was not yet right for him to declare that he was the Son of God. His disciples still had to be trained, and he had more to do to demonstrate what the Father was like. The people in Jerusalem believed because of the signs, and the signs do tell us something about the nature of God, but Jesus knew they did not yet understand all of what being a follower of Jesus included. He understood human nature and knew that most of those followers who believed in him after seeing the signs would leave when they discovered the cost of discipleship and the sacrifices inherent in Christian service had to be made. And in fact, that's exactly what happens later in his ministry. We'll find that happening in the sixth chapter of John. Jesus even asked his own disciples if they were going to abandon him also. So Jesus was not ready to entrust to those who believed because of his signs that he was the Messiah. And he knew that he must die for their sins and the sins of the world. Indeed, his own disciples were not yet ready for that revelation. The next lesson, lesson four, we will pick up with chapter three.